Hello, folks, and welcome to the Elephant Feast, where we are looking at the complexities of life, faith, and relationships one bite at a time. I am your host, Jordan Johnson, and you are invited to the table. So pull up a seat and let's dig in. Thank you all for joining me here today. I am so happy to be with you. We're going to have a great time as we continue our journey looking at the Bible through the frame of a story arc. Does it change how we see scripture? Does it help us understand the flow? Does it maybe help us connect the individual books of the Bible more cohesively? That is the goal. That's what we're trying to do. And I've had a lot of fun with this. This is something that that gets me really passionate because I have studied the Bible for a long time. I've grown up in the Christian household. I've never known life without the Bible. And as I've begun to enter in the study of literature and how it works, and then seeing how it works within the scriptures, it, it just, it, it makes the Bible exciting. And I think the Bible should be exciting. It is a crazy book, crazy in that it is so wonderful and worth our time in studying. But here we go, folks. We are on our second stop on the ark. Okay, last time we talked about the setting, and we're going to take what we've learned from the setting, and we're going to bring it into the next step on the story arc, which is the conflict, or sometimes it's called the inciting incident. It has a bunch of different names. Um, Sometimes it's called the call to adventure, but it is the part where we diverge from the rhythm of the setting into something new. So before we go any further, let's talk about what conflict is in literature. So conflict is the problems that exist and the attempts to solve those problems. Okay, so there are two main types of conflict. There is external and internal. And what you will see is that they often show up both types in a good story, um, but and they both kind of have their own functions. So external, obviously, it sets a character against something or someone beyond their control. External forces stand in the way of a character's motivations and create tension as the character tries to reach their goal. So we're talking external barriers, external obstacles that are standing in the way of our character. And let's not forget, our two main characters are God and humanity. And conflict, you're going to see that conflict shows up with both characters. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, The second one is internal, when a character struggles with their own opposing desires or beliefs. And this happens within them. And it's also what drives their development as a character. So that's the first main thing we understand about conflict. Without conflict, there is no story. Because the conflict is moving the person forward out of their normal zone, out of their comfort zone. And this is where the development of character comes from. So if so, to the age-old question, um, a possible answer to the question, why did Adam and Eve sin in the garden? Why couldn't they have just not sinned? Well, a plausible answer is there had to be conflict. Otherwise, there's no growth. There's no development, which is a uh, you know curious thought to think about that. We needed sin in order for the story to work, 
Ooh, let that sink in. Because the simple answer is, if there is no conflict in the story, then a story is not worth telling. Ultimately, stories are about how to live life. And life needs conflict because it's in the conflict where you find the meaning. Because that's, that's, that's what conflict is. It is the template. It is the canvas where the meaning of the story finds its base. So we talked about the setting. The setting is essential because you need certain information to know what to expect. But also what we now discover is that conflict is necessary because you can't tell a story without it. Think of like a weaving loom. Okay. A weaving loom that's part of the machinery uh, is sets up to pull the strings tight so that the textile, the rug, the tapestry that can all be woven into. And it only works if the strings are held tightly. If you try to weave a rug with loose strings without tension, it's going to look sloppy. Conflict is a key ingredient for a good story that brings meaning and shows people what it means to live. Meaning produces emotional attachment or attunement. When the readers, when the, when the audience's emotions are not aroused, the connection that is formed between the characters in the story and the audience's mind are severed. You don't get that without conflict because we must remember the story also requires an audience. So here, so we've got this little grab bag of things that you have to have for a story. You need an audience. You have to have setting and you have to have conflict. And there is conflict aplenty in the Bible, which are going to bring you to the first big idea. You know, traditionally, when you hear the story of our scripture, we've talked about this before, the creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And that four beat, usually people talk about fall. They are talking about Genesis chapter three, from the beginning of chapter three to the end of chapter three, typically constitutes the fall. But I don't like that. I mean, it works. It fits. Like no, it's not you know no arguments like that. But in terms of building that emotional attachment to the audience, I don't think just one chapter does it justice. So here we go. And I'm not the only person that has said this too. There's scholars out there that have talked about this idea. But the conflict of the story is not Genesis chapter three. The conflict of the story is Genesis chapter three all the way through 11. So not only is the moment Adam and Eve make a choice counter to God, but the next eight chapters show the reaction and unraveling of the setting. Because remember what we said last time is that the setting is the established rhythm and the loss of that rhythm then becomes the goal to regain. So once conflict is introduced, then the setting goes from the setting to the goal in which they're trying to regain. And Genesis 3 through 11, it shows the unraveling of the setting and then gives us a something to push off of as we move into the conflict. So that's what we're going to see. So we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 3 through 11 to see how conflict shows up in the Bible. But also we need to know the stakes. Okay, because once again, 
that emotional attachment, that attunement between the audience and the characters is necessary. So we need to understand the stakes. What is going on? What was lost? Because when you review and think, we're going to talk about this in a little bit, but the big idea here is that God didn't change when Adam and Eve sinned. God did not change and humanity as God created them also didn't change. So then the question is, what changed? What did the conflict disrupt? And I would submit to you that it's not humanity as God has designed them, but it rather what has changed now is how humans and God think. What has changed now is that how humanity sees themselves. What has changed is that now humanity and God have different values. They have different ways of solving problems. Humans are operating on an alternative wisdom because that's what the tree represents, the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. That's what it represents. It represents this idea that there is a way to solve problem. And Adam and Eve are not choosing God's way. They're choosing their own way, which goes back to conflict. Conflict is the obstacles and problems that exist in the attempts of the characters to solve those problems. Now there we have something to go off of. It's not just this God's mad and and Adam and Eve are selfish and childish. There are some very childish things about them, but we need to understand that when you're looking at the text, it's a little more complicated than maybe what we care to admit. Let's just take the snake, for example. Okay, When we look at the snake, we can see a lot that's going on here. Okay, but but let's just let's just pause for a moment and just think about the snake. When the snake is talking to E, he is um he's doing not normal snake things. Now, just to clear things up right now, at this point in the text there is no connection between the snake in the garden and Satan or a demonic force. We do not get that connection until hundreds of years after the Old Testament was completed. So when they are telling this story to the original audience, there was not a connection made between Satan and demonic forces between the snake. It was just a snake, just reading it plainly. But we also see that the snake is not doing normal snake thing. And as uh, one teacher has told me, look for the problems because the problems is where you're going to find treasure. And the problem we have here is the snake is not behaving like a snake. Let's just think about it. Let's just go through the list. Um, the, the snake is talking, okay? The snake is using logic. It's, it's arguing with Eve. The, the, the snake is building a relationship. The snake is walking, okay? And it's, it's almost like the snake is doing its best to mimic a human. And so there we have the tension being built up. There is a sense that Eve is tempted to take power for herself, to reach out and control. Okay, we're going to see about that. It's going to be summed up in these three words, see, desire, and take. But we need to understand also that there is already this pull to come up with your own version of wisdom. Because when you look at the story, Eve is arguing with the snake. Okay, if so, so if you are under the belief that Adam and Eve didn't know the difference between good and bad before they ate of the tree, then we need to look at the text because Eve is clearly arguing with the snake. She is rebuffing him. She's pushing back. If you don't know the difference between good and evil, you're not going to push back. 
And so we do have this idea. We do have the sense that she is already beginning to say what you are saying is not okay because of this. Now, there's all sorts of problems. And yes, ultimately, they do sin. Okay, we are not, um, we are not giving excuses here. But let's go back to those three words that show up in the book of Genesis in chapter three, at the moment when Eve takes the fruit. She sees that the fruit is lovely. She desires the fruit for herself and she takes. Now, what's interesting is that earlier in Genesis chapter two, when God is describing the creation of Eden, he says that all the trees in there are awesome to look at and good for food. And so the difference that we're seeing here is that at this point here, now she is taking what she is not supposed to take. You know, some of the rabbis have talked about this idea that God was going to teach Adam and Eve how he thinks, how he solves problems, the way that God designed things to work. But by Adam and Eve reaching out and grabbing the fruit, it's almost as if they reached out and grabbed for wisdom too early and it wasn't ripe. And because they didn't wait, because they reached out for themselves, everything is then becomes unraveled. And so what is being unraveled? The setting of the story. So humanity's desire to take what was likely going to be given to them is where we find the conflict. And it is there where we understand the conflict if we look at the setting to what has. So in the setting, we talked about how God was powerful, powerful in his ability to create, to provide a safe place for humanity to thrive. And now, now with conflict, now there's competition or at least a very strong doubt. Is he as powerful as he says he is? And then we also talked about how God was generous. Okay. This idea that there was life and plenty flowing out of Eden that was meant and designed for everyone on this earth. And now when conflict is introduced, it shifts to a scarcity mindset. Adam has only one wife, Eve. You skip forward a few paragraphs and you come to our guy named uh, Lamech and Lamech has two wives, okay? Scarcity mindset, no more generosity. I need to make sure I get what I want and make sure I'm taken care of before anything else. Uh, we talk about this idea of God being a provider. He created Eden for people to dwell in and he also created Eden to overflow across the rest of the world. And now when conflict is introduced, you have Cain in Genesis chapter four, he now goes out and starts building cities. And that's a big idea. In the ancient world, the difference between a village and a city is if the village had a wall to protect it. So you could have a village of 10 people, right? And place a wall around it and boom, you got a city. So what are walls do? Walls protect what you have hoarded. Walls protect what you have built for yourself and it keeps other people out. Eden had rivers flowing out. And now when the conflict is introduced, now walls are going up. We talked about um, creation and God's design being peaceful. Now, obviously, we see that violence has been introduced. And not only that, but even like very specific mentions of violence. For instance, uh, hunter and predator type language gets introduced here. It talks about Nimrod, who is a great hunter. Uh, later on, some other people are going to be known as hunters, but their character is kind of sketchy. Um, 
even in chapter four, sin, the first time sin shows up in the Bible, Genesis chapter four, uh, it's used in this predatory animal language. It says that sin is crouching at your door and its desire is for you, which is interesting play on words. Eve desires the fruit. And now when the conflict is introduced, sin desires the human. Um, we talked about how God was ordered. And now that conflict has been introduced, now that sin is having its way, the world, the ordered world becomes progressively disordered. Okay, just look at Genesis chapter six, the flood story as a great example. Not only do you have um, human evil just unleashed upon the world, but it's gotten to such a point where God uncreates the world through a flood. And we talked about how God was restrained. God's restraint now is questioned. God's restraint is challenged, even into the flood story. When it talks about how God reigns and rests on the seventh day over creation, because it's complete, okay, now this idea of God's restraint is challenged and put into question because then we get this whole flood story thing going on where it does seem like God is letting himself go. He is not holding back. It says that he regrets humanity, which real quick, I know this is a very difficult question that is worth a lot of time. Um, I'm not trying to simplify it at all, but one of the ways that this works out in my mind is that when you look at the audience. Remember, the audience, the audience, the audience plays a huge role into how we understand the story. Let's think about it real quick. The audience, once again, the audience is either the Israelites as they were coming out of Egypt or the Judahites or the Judeans as they were being released from Babylon, moving back into their hometown and beginning to start over again. These people were in a system, in a culture where the gods have placed other people over them and have said, this is the way things are supposed to be. And when you look at the deities in the ancient Near East, okay, the Southwest Asian deities, they tend to be really angry at humans a lot and they destroy the world a lot. And so when the flood story begins with God saying, I'm going to wipe everyone out, the audience is not going to be surprised. The audience is going to say, oh yeah, that's just what gods do. Okay. But that sets it up for the plot twist that God is actually going to say, no, I am never again going to do this. So once again, God is seen as unrestrained. That's the challenge. I'm going to destroy everyone. And he does it. And then in the middle of Genesis chapter eight, right when the floodwaters are at their height, it says at the beginning of Genesis chapter eight, but God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and domestic animals that were with him in the ark. God caused a wind to blow over the earth and the waters receded. So right there, that's the signal to the audience. Okay, God is still restrained. He finished creation and he said, that's enough. And then in the flood story, when you're talking about the uncreation, the decreation, even there, he says, okay, that's enough. 
and he's showing restraint. So even in the unraveling, God is already starting to show his character and that he is still restrained. Just just really cool stuff that comes out. All right, so let's keep going. Now switch over to the humans. For the humans, remember we had said that in the setting, the humans were naked and unashamed. They did not have to hide from anything. They had no secrets between each other. They did not need to perform in order to get the affections of others. And now, after sin, they realize they're naked. And furthermore, nakedness is a bad thing. So now they need to hide. They need to protect themselves. They now need secrets which plays into the whole idea of why Cain needs to build cities. This idea of we realize we're naked, we need protection. We talked about humans. They have agency. And honestly, they still have agency. But once again, now because they're operating on an alternative wisdom, that agency is distorted. And they are trying to solve problems, going back to the conflict. But it's in the solving of those problems where sin is now being produced all the more because their agency, their ability to choose is being distorted. We talked about how they had a purpose. Their purpose was to maintain and build in the Garden of Eden so that it spreads across the world. Now they have to leave the garden. They are now exiles. And so now even their sense of identity and their sense of purpose is being lost. And then finally, we talked about this idea of them being parted, that for humanity to be successful, for humanity to be what God wants them to be, they needed a male and female. And that was a good thing. And we talked about how there was a tension built into that before sin entered the world. And that tension was so that humans could be like God, so that they could restrain each other and put tension against each other but not the tension of aggression, the tension of uh, just like building a house so that they could be stronger and build many good things. And now that has been distorted. And so that does become a aggressive tension, a belligerent tension, a us versus them type tension, which brings us into the pain of childbirth. There are some scholars that talk about it's not necessarily talking about physical birth pains, but the idea that to produce children now, there are going to be broken relationships. And the person who you look at as the person who you are building a life with is also a person who's going to cause you pain and frustration in the relationship. So that was lost. Just going through just a few things. As I said, you could dive deep and find all kinds of really good stuff. And maybe as we go further on down the line, maybe we'll re- revisit this and maybe take a, a deeper dive. Once again, I'm trying to cover, uh, you know, eight or so chapters and just try to give you guys a, a good enough to wrap your minds around to kind of help you understand how the story arc can change and affect how you read the Bible for the better. I think I could be wrong, but you have the option to listen to the podcast or not. So let's keep on going, which brings us to the problem of evil, or rather what I'm going to say is the problem of unrestrained evil. So let's go back to the creation mandate, fill the earth, be fruitful, multiply, and subdue it. That subduing term, we talked about that is maintaining the garden. If you look at how like a garden in our day, in our modern day, if you have a garden, you plant it, you water it, but you don't maintain it. It just gets to be a mess. Everything grows. They start to choke each other out. Weeds grow up. 
there is a sense of maintaining. But now because sin has entered into the world, now that maintaining has gotten unrestrained and it's ruining everything. And we see this most clearly when we look at the story of Cain, where now that shame has been introduced into the story, then we move it on to the story of Abel and Cain, or Cain and Abel, and then we see fear is introduced and we show how fear affects the character. When in the story of Cain and Abel, of course, you guys know, uh, Cain and Abel both make their offerings to God. God accepts Abel's. He does not accept Cain's. And right then and there, Cain feels the pangs and panic of fear. God has not accepted mine. And he just goes off on this negative downward thought spiral that God sees and God tries to warn him saying, Hey, if you do good, awesome. If you don't do good, that's not okay. And what he's referring to Cain, he says, Hey, by the way, you still have the ability to choose how to do things my way. And he says, but if you do not, then sin is waiting at your door, crouched and waiting at your door, and this desire is for you. If you let fear drive you, sin is going to have its way. Unrestrained evil is going to strike again. And of course, as we know the story, Cain does succumb, and he does kill his brother. Evil does have its way. And then Cain, once again, has to continue on the exile train. And as he goes out there, and, and, and even then, God is still saying, I'm going to place a mark on you to protect you as you go. So this whole God is being confused. There are parts that are being confused, but at the same time, he's already showing that he is committed to the story. He is committed to what he has said and designed. And that is where we find the hope as the story continues. So once again, so when we look at Genesis 3 through 11, we don't see a singular act of sin, but we see now the unraveling of creation. And then also we see the cycle being continued over and over again. So conflict is not one singular act, but rather the beginning of a cycle, a cycle of violence, selfishness, pridefulness. And then we're going to see that as we look at the story of Noah. So Noah and the flood gives us our first great example of the repeated cycle. And by the way, this is, you know, spoiler alert, this is the cycle that's going to be repeated until we get to the climax, but we're not quite there yet. So we have the story of Noah and through a sinful people, Noah shows up to become a Messiah figure protecting humanity and God's creation through the decreation of the world. Okay. The flood waters subsiding is a retelling of the creation story, even ending with the ark landing on what? The top of a mountain. Okay. And then Noah, what is he doing? Planting a vineyard. Okay. He's planting a garden. Okay. Creation has now been restarted. The world has been wiped. And now God says, let's recreate. But instead of restoration, we get the continuation of the problem. Noah is not restrained. So he gets drunk. Ham, with a scarcity mindset, takes advantage of his father. And then Noah, you guys may have noticed this, he does not curse Ham when he realized the sketchy thing that Ham did. But he curses Ham's descendants. He curses Cana, which is Noah 
who is supposed to be the Messiah figure, he now becomes the person who perpetuates the cycle of revenge. I'm not just taking my revenge on you. I'm taking revenge on your family and the coming generations, which is where we see evil is unraveling, which really cool um, thing about the story of Noah. It begins with the story saying that God saw that human hearts were inclined towards evil all the time. And that's all they ever did. And then he regrets. And then he goes through the flood narrative. And then at the end, he says, even though human hearts are now always thinking about evil, I am never going to destroy the world again. And so you see God committing to the story once again, whether humanity joins or not, God's going to honor his end of the bargain. So I want to end though. Let's bring it to a close. And I want to talk about the prologue frame. And this is really kind of a cool thing. Um, I would submit to you that Genesis 1 through 11 is similar in function and in framing as the opening prologue of the Fellowship of the Ring. So many of you guys have remembered um, the joy of seeing Lord of the Rings in theater. And if you guys remember in Fellowship of the Ring, you have that great opening line where you have Galadriel doing a voiceover as she begins to tell a brief history of the uh, making of the Rings of Power and how the one ring came into being. And she talks about how it goes out to the different races of Middle Earth. And she talks about how Sauron secretly wrested control of that and how the rings were betrayed and, and causing darkness to fall across the land and, and how when Sauron was conquering and he was almost complete in his domination of the world, the last alliance of men and elves takes her stand and pushes him back all the way to the slopes of Mount Doom where they cut the ring off of his finger and Asilidor takes it up to Mount Doom as right as he's about to cast it into the fire, forever solving the problem of evil in J.R.R. Tolkien's mind. He says no and he walks away and then fade to black and then the next shot opens up on the Shire as you get introduced now to Frodo and Gandalf. The prologue is not quite the setting of a story. It is, but it does a lot more heavy lifting. Okay, so the prologue is necessary to set the scene of a story. It introduces the narrator. It introduces you to the characters. It also introduces you to the themes and motifs that are going to be present throughout the story. Now, because the prologue is set apart from the rest of the story, it signals that it's important. And so it's crucial that it stands out. When you go to Genesis 3, 1 through 11, you get this kind of this book in where you have creation ending with Eden up high on a mountain um, with God's presence. And in 11, the very ending shot, you get the Tower of Babel literally built on a plane. Okay. So you go from a mountain down to a plane. We're talking opposites. And then instead of a God created mountain reaching up into the sky, now you have a man-made pyramid, man-made tower type thing that is also reaching up into the sky. They kind of form bookends too. So that's where we kind of get this prologue frame. Um, but also Genesis 1 through 11, you get all the characters introduced and all the major themes and motifs that you're going to see repeated throughout scripture. You get recreate, you get creation, you get sin, you get grace, uh, justice, mercy, redemption, restoration, exile, all the major themes within the biblical story are introduced in Genesis 1 through 11. And then as the story continues, 
the authors and the Holy Spirit working together begin to show how these themes work together and what it looks like. Um, so I, I just think that was a really cool thing. This is something I've just recently begun to notice that Genesis 1 through 11 can be seen as a prologue setting up the rest of the story, which brings us to a new setting. So at the end of chapter 11, everything gets reset now. With the prologue in the background that's going to be guiding us along the way, we now begin with the family of Abram. And so let's close with this picture of the Tower of Babel, everyone not being able to understand each other and and slowly departing, leaving just the tower in the background. And the camera fades to black. And in a brief moment, the camera comes back on and you see a desert landscape. And then moving in from the right of the frame, you see people walking in the distance. And that is Abram and his family as they are now being set out on another adventure and a new setting. And we're going to see how conflict and the setting shows up. We're going to see how the prologue supports what's going on as we move into the next step of our story, the rising action, which is probably one of my favorite parts. And I'll tell you why when we come back to the Elephant Feast. So that's what we have here today, guys. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, I would love to get some feedback about what you guys think. Um, I mean, if I can give it, leave a review and um, a rating, that would be very helpful. I am still very much in the learning phase of all this, so I'm very open to helpful suggestions and constructive critiques. Um, If you want to be a part of the Elephant Feast, it is an open invitation to make this an amazing thing where everyone um, can talk about the complexities of life, faith, and relationships one bite at a time. Thank you so much for joining me, folks, and I will see you next time at the Elephant Feast. Peace.